so far in our time uh, together that's leading up to where we are today, uh, Jesus has entered into Jerusalem. And his disciples, he and his disciples are camped just outside the city of Jerusalem. And a lot of things have happened. I mean, he shows up just outside of Jerusalem and he ends up entering the city, riding on the, the foal of a donkey and people are waving branches and putting coats down and yelling Hosanna and, and you know, praise be the, the son of David and the coming kingdom. And they're just going crazy. The whole city is in an uproar wanting to know what to do with Jesus. Uh, Jesus has cursed a fig tree. David covered that and he's, he's cursed this fig tree as a sign of uh, Israel. He drove out the money changers from the temple, went into the temple and drove out the money changers and the people who were selling cattle and livestock and everything right inside the temple. And so he's, he's made quite a stir coming into Jerusalem. Uh, there's, there's a way to enter and not be seen. That was not it. I mean, if you were trying to get attention, that would be the way to do it. Start with all the crowds following you and yelling behind you, then go right to the temple and cause a stir. Now, let's say you did those things. Where would be a safe place to be afterwards? Probably back outside the city, over on the Mount of Olives or something. Instead, we find out that Jesus camps out in the temple and goes there every day to teach. So you have crowds, massive crowds that have come from all over the region to be here for the Passover. You have the, all the things that Jesus just did and now each day he's coming into the city and he's actually teaching in the temple. Luke chapter 19, verses 47 and 48 say that every day he was teaching in the temple. And the chief priests and the scribes and the leaders of the people were all looking for a way to kill him. But they could not find a way to do it because all the people were captivated by what they heard. So... Jesus returned to the temple each day to teach. And actually in, in Luke chapter 20, verse 1, it says that he was teaching um, the people in the temple and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. So he's proclaiming the same message he has been proclaiming all along. Only now he's doing it in Jerusalem, in the temple, knowing that some of the people listening want to kill him. You ever been in a situation where you've had to speak to people who were hostile against you? Oh, I have. In this very building, even. I remember we had, years ago, one person who said that it would be their mission and their goal to have me removed as pastor of the church because he didn't believe that the elders had the biblical authority in the church, and he thought that I was acting out of line with God's word. And I remember coming every single day to the service to preach, knowing that this person who wanted to do me harm was sitting usually right in the middle, staring right at me the entire time. And you know what's hard in that situation is to still have the heart of God, isn't it? To know that we're there to share the good news of the kingdom of God and to preach a gospel of loving our neighbors and also our enemies. That was a very trying time for me, but it gave me a little bit of an insight as to what it's like to preach the good news, to stand firm on God's word and to face opposition and still need to share that message in a loving way. So here's Jesus in the temple. They're not just trying to discredit him or remove him as a prophet in the people's eyes. They want to like remove him, remove him. They want him gone. 
I want to take them totally out. And here he is teaching and preaching, not hiding, but going right into the midst of where they would be in the temple, and he's teaching. Now, we've learned over the past few weeks that most of the people don't really know who Jesus is. They think he's a, a, good, a good man, a good prophet. They don't really know what to do with him either, except some people have an idea of what they want to do with him. And Luke makes it very clear that, that some of them want to kill him. So you kind of have to ask yourself the question, why do these religious leaders want to kill him? Why do they want him gone that badly? Right? Maybe it was because the punishment for blasphemy was death. And they saw him as someone who was blaspheming the name of God by claiming to be God or sent from God. Perhaps it was pure jealousy or rage. Rage at the things he said about them and that John even said about them. Or jealousy of the way that the crowds followed him but didn't follow them. We really don't know if their motives were selfish or actually like altruistic and pious. We really don't know. But we know what their final goal was, what they were intending, and that was to kill the prophet from Nazareth. Now, we need to do a timeout here. You and I are on the sidelines of this story, right? This happened several thousand years ago. We're, we're looking at it, having, knowing what's already taken place, and kind of going back and looking back at history. And I believe if you're in this part of this congregation, you probably also acknowledge Jesus as the Son of God and therefore the good guy in the story, right? I'm going to make that assumption. And if you don't have that conviction, you need to see me or David after the service. We'd love to help answer questions you have about that. But I want you to imagine with me something. Imagine some Sunday morning, a stranger from out of town pulls into the parking lot with a bunch of cars behind him honking their horns, right? A man steps out, walks up to the deacons and says, you're not taking care of God's house properly. Then after that, he calls the crowds around him and he holds a healing service and starts healing people. And then if things aren't weird enough, he then stands on the steps of the church every day and starts teaching about the kingdom of heaven and on top of that, starts saying really nasty things about me and David. He's not a member of our congregation. We don't know his education. All we know is that he's offensive to some, but apparently attractive to others because the crowds keep getting bigger and bigger in the parking lot. What, were, what would you do if you were a pastor or a deacon in that situation? What would you do if this was your church and these things were taking place? Because that's basically what's happened here in Jerusalem. With that in mind, I want you to imagine yourself back at the temple. There's the smell of incense and burnt offerings going on behind you in the temple. There's the sound of animals. There's the amazing crowd that's there for the Passover, all gathered around. There's the tension of the berated religious leaders as Jesus is teaching and the crowds adoring Jesus. I mean, how could you not? He just healed a blind man and a lame person, right? And now I want us to read together Matthew chapter 21, starting in verse 23. When he entered the temple, 
the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him as he was teaching. And they said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, well, I will also ask you one question. And if you answer it for me, I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Did John's baptism come from heaven or was it of human origin? Well, they discussed it among themselves. Well, if we say from heaven, he'll say to us, then why don't you believe him? If we say of human origin, we're afraid of the crowd because everyone considered John to be a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So let me ask you a question. Do you think that the question of the religious leaders was at all out of line? Who says no? We're going to show a hand. I'm going to embarrass all of you. Who says, yeah, I think your question is out of line? How many are like, I am not raising my hand in public ever. So you won't even raise your hand for that one, I know. Right? I don't think it's out of line at all. If you're going to stand in the temple and teach, what authority do you have to stand in the temple and teach? Now, a lot of people would come to the temple steps and teach. It was a public gathering place. But when you're speaking about the kingdom of God, and you're in a place that's an established organization, religious organization, the head of your religious organization, is it inappropriate for the leaders of that organization to question somebody that comes in and starts teaching things contrary to their teachings? Or seemingly contrary to the, it was contrary to their teachings, not contrary to God's word. I want to clarify that, right? I don't think that their questioning was out of line at all. Um, I think that it would, be, it would have been inappropriate for the leaders to just ignore somebody coming in and teaching something contrary to their teachings. The problem is not what they're questioning, is it? The problem is with their motive and their heart. The question is sound, but we know from this gospel account looking back that they are there because they want to arrest him and kill him. So it's the motives that are wrong, not, not the question. Now, Jesus could have just said, well, I'm sent by Yahweh. Can't you tell? Who else could do these miracles? He's already made a scene, right? He could have just made that statement. But this section, this questioning is not really a questioning of Jesus' authority. It's more a questioning of the authority of, of the religious leaders. It's a questioning of, of their understanding of Scripture and of God's authority and their understanding of what's happening. It was a trap. So basically, Jesus took the posture of the ones asking him the question, and he asked it back. Now, as parents, you hate it when your kids do this, right? You ask your kids something, and they ask you something back that's not what you want from your kids. How many of you agree with that? It's like, no, I ask you something, I just want an answer, right? I have a feeling the religious leaders were a little bit frustrated as well. They wanted an answer, but Jesus took on the, the a traditional form of a rabbi and answered the question with a question which I think is really cool. See, the source of Jesus' authority was the same as the source of John's authority. And that was the point Jesus was, was making. And if the leaders would just tell Jesus what they believed about John's authority, then Jesus said, and I'll tell you about my authority. Did you catch the part, though, where it says that the religious leaders obviously knew enough about John's message to know 
that if they believed that John came from heaven, they would have to accept that Jesus came from heaven? They knew that much about John's message to know who Jesus really claimed to be, and if they were willing to accept John was from God, they would have to accept that Jesus was from God also? It's a pretty, pretty bold statement. The religious leaders were forced to make a decision. Um, however, their, their matrix for decision-making was really um, askew. They didn't want to admit one answer because they didn't like how that answer would make them answer in another way, the, the next question. If we say that John's authority was from heaven, we would have to admit that Jesus was from heaven also. The other possible answer they didn't want to give because they were afraid of the people. So their decision-making process was we don't want to give what we think is the right answer because we're, we don't like where the right answer leads. So we're just going to say that that's not an option because we apply that truth across the board. We're not going to be happy with the result. And we don't want to give this answer because we're afraid of what the people would say. Even if we don't even think it's the right answer, we're afraid of what the people will do. So our decision-making process is the first one makes us look bad, so we can't say that. The second one makes us um, afraid of what the people are going to do, so we can't say that. What a horrible matrix for making decisions. Can we agree with that? Wow, I mean, it's just so wrong. So wrong. Um, they're afraid of the second answer, saying that Jesus was from the people, because if the, if the crowds heard that and got upset, you have a large group in Jerusalem. If you get an uprising in Jerusalem, there's a very good chance that you're going to bring the Roman government down on you. And that is not something you want as the religious leaders in that day. So in the end, they simply say, we don't know. Now, I think we've all answered like that before, haven't we? Have you ever been asked a question and you know the answer, you don't want to admit the answer, she's like, I don't know. Come on, admit it. Haven't you done it? I don't know. Maybe. I don't know, maybe. All right. And Jesus says, listen, fine, if you're not going to answer, I'm not going to answer, we'll call it a draw on this one. Actually, he won, but he's like, I won't answer if you don't answer. And as I've pondered on this particular encounter, it's a very small encounter, but I think there's some really um, interesting things to think through here. And, and I want to kind of pause for a little bit to make some applications that hopefully aren't stretching things um, too far here. It seems to me that that the religious leaders wanted to say that John was from, sent from God, but they didn't want to say that Jesus' authority was from God. They wanted to acknowledge one but not the other. And that would have created a double standard where you're taking one truth and applying it one way here and that same truth and applying it differently over here. And that would be totally inappropriate. For all their faults, I think that this is actually one of those things that we should be looking at and saying, well, at least they got that right. You can't create a double standard, and the people wouldn't allow that for them to have that double standard. You have to be consistent in your convictions and in your application of those convictions and of the scriptures. You can't simply apply one part of scripture to this situation and say, well, that's true, and then take it and apply it differently to a situation over here and say, well, it's not true over here, but it's true over here. You have to be consistent with that belief. And the rabbis would understand that because a lot of the rabbinic thought is based upon logic and reasoning and application of a principle across all of Scripture. You can even make a lot of assumptions on certain passages by taking what you've applied previously and then bringing them into a passage. You have to have consistency. 
in your convictions. And I think that this is something that we've lost sight of in our society and even in our churches today. We're very big in our culture in taking truth and applying it in a vacuum. And we'll apply a truth from here and say it's true here, but then we'll take that same truth and we'll twist it and make it say something differently in this arena. And I just want to give a little illustration of this because I think it's very relevant for us today. Um, as, a, as a believer and as, as one who understands that all of life comes from God and that all of life is sacred, we've talked about the sanctity of life in the past uh, couple months quite a bit. I value all life. So for me to say that these lives matter, black lives matter, blue lives matter, well, yes, all lives matter, right? Because mankind was made in the image of God. So for a society to say these lives matter and yet to totally disregard the lives of those that have not um, come out of the womb, the unborn lives, is to take a truth of lives mattering and applying it differently in two different arenas. Over here, it matters because they were adults, so therefore their lives matter, or because they had a certain ethnicity or a certain occupation. But over here, these unborn, they have no value because they haven't added to society yet. Either a life matters or it doesn't. You can't have truth that you apply differently in different arenas. You either value life or you don't. I think there's some other crazy stuff that has happened even in our own state that really kind of makes you think. We, we don't like cruelty, is that fair? We don't like cruelty. In 2019, our state passed a law that said that it's inhumane to declaw cats. It's a law in our state. It's inhumane to declaw cats um, because it can, and it can create physical and behavioral problems for the helpless animals. That was the logic behind it. In January of that same year, our state passed a law allowing abortions up to um, 24 weeks into the pregnancy, which apparently, therefore, is not considered inhumane for the helpless child. Do you see how we can take truth and say, in this situation, we want it to apply this way, and in this situation, we want it to apply this way? You cannot have double standards of truth. If God's word says that something is right or true, you must hold true to that and not alter it just to fit your culture or to fit what people around you want you to say. While that might seem a bit off topic from today's scripture, um, I believe the principle is important. These religious leaders knew that they could not take the truth and apply it one way to John and another way to Jesus. It's either all right or it's all wrong. And you can't just pick and choose how to apply that truth. Um, we need to be the same way with the way that we handle God's word and culture. We must apply biblical standards and do it consistently, consistently, which leads to our next application. We must act on truth. It's apparent that the leaders were blinded either by their anger or fears or zeal for God. Whatever the, the motive was behind it, they were obviously blinded by that. 
And they could have said that John was from God, and they could have acknowledged that Jesus was therefore from God. As a matter of fact, that's going to be what the, the focus of the next parable is about. He's going to call them out for knowing the truth, hearing the truth, and not acting on the truth. And when we have the truth in front of us, we must act on it. It's very possible that we ourselves can be blinded by our own prejudices as well as crippled by our own fears. It's possible in the United States to have an opinion about Jesus that is not popular with the masses. And because of that, some religious leaders and Christians might not want to speak the truth of what God's word says, for fear of the people. It's possible that religious leaders and Christians might be blinded by historical or perhaps historically bad teachings and be more concerned about protecting those faulty beliefs and their own systems than acknowledging the truth. When we are confronted by the truth, we must learn to act on the truth. The problem that the religious leaders had was they had come to hear the truth of who Jesus was and they failed to act on it. Or I should say the way that they're choosing to act on it is not appropriate. So I guess a question would be, what is your filter? The matrix of decision-making was obviously whacked for the religious leaders in Jesus' day. But what is your filter? What is your matrix? Is it tradition? Is it protection? Is it not wanting to upset people? Is it going with the masses? Or is it the word of God? There is a reason why over and over again, Matthew keeps taking us back to the word of God, back to the Torah, back to the law, back to the prophets, because he understands that if you're going to have a standard that you apply to who Jesus is and what he does and what God's will is, it better be the word of God. So over and over and over again, he drives us back to that point. All right, sorry. Bit of a rant there. Um, I, had, I had to get that out because I think that we often lose sight of those truths. So the religious leaders did not um, stay, they, they were wavered in their view. They weren't sure how to address the situation. They didn't want to take a stand because they didn't want to um, acknowledge that they could be wrong and they didn't want to upset people. So they just took no stand whatsoever. And then Jesus launches into three parables. And we're going to read these parables and just kind of give a summary of each um, so you can see how they connect. Remember, Matthew puts together stories that belong together. And a lot of this content in this next section is pretty unique to Matthew. Some of it carries spills over, but the majority of it's unique to Matthew. And he shares this, this information because it, it ties into this lesson with the religious leaders. The first one is the parable of the two sons. So uh, chapter 21, verse 28. Immediately after saying to these religious leaders, you know what, you're not going to tell me what you think, what you know is true. You're not going to answer my question. So I'm not going to answer yours. And then he says this. So what do you think? So he's looking right at the religious leader and says, so what do you think? A man had two sons. He went to the first and he said, my son, go work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I, I don't want to. But later he changed his mind and he went. Then the man went to the other son and said the same thing. I will, sir, he answered, but he didn't go. Which of his two sons did the father's will? And the religious leaders answered, the first. Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you didn't believe him. 
Tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him, but you, when you saw it, didn't even change your minds then and believe him. Wow. First, did you notice how many times the word you and your shows up? He is looking at these religious leaders, and he says, so, so, so what do you think about this? Here's the situation, two sons. One says he's not going to do it, he does it. The other one says he's going to do it and doesn't. Which one did the will of the Father? Well, of course, the one who actually did it, even though he had a bad attitude in the first place. <laughs> he looks at him and he says, you know what? Prostitutes and tax collectors are getting to heaven before you. Those of you who studied God's law, who created your own laws to help people fulfill God's law, who are teaching in the temple, prostitutes and tax collectors are getting into heaven before you. That's scandalous. I mean, that is in your face rough. And it was because they failed to believe. It appears that Jesus knew what was in their hearts in the discussions because they said, if we say that John's authority was from heaven, he will say, why didn't you believe him? Um, Jesus said, basically, listen, you didn't believe John's message. He didn't bring up his own message. He said, you didn't even believe John's message. John showed up, and you didn't believe a word of it. Now imagine being one of those religious leaders. Well, let's just take where you are now. Most of you have no aspirations to become elders of the church. That's fine. I'm okay with that. But let's say you spent your entire life in churches, in church families, studying God's word, Maybe you even memorize certain books of the Bible. Maybe you memorize the whole Old Testament or the whole New Testament. And then somebody like Jesus comes up to you and he says, even the worst people of our society are going to get into heaven before you. That's rough. It was scandalous. And it's among this large crowd that's followed Jesus to the temple. This was a public insult in front of the masses to the religious leaders. Now, his teaching is certainly in line with the rest of the teachings we've had from him about this upside-down kingdom, right? He said the, the least will become the greatest, and the greatest will become the least. And if you want to become great, you must become a servant. And there's... How many teachings do we have now? Three teachings about the children. Let the children come to me. And if you want to enter the kingdom, you must become like these children. You must have what like a child? Humility like a child. Good. I'm going to keep saying this like week after week until you get it. And it's not like faith like a child anymore. It's humility. You have humility like a child. In other words, you, you can't have the arrogance that says, I know the answer and you can't be it. You have to have the arrogance that says, maybe I've missed it and I need to accept it and have that kind of humility to say maybe I was wrong. The religious leaders had a lot to say about obeying Yahweh, but ultimately they were all talk and no action when John and Jesus showed up. Can, can we certainly draw the conclusion that life service is far more important than lip service? Life service is far more important than lip service. So Jesus continues on. So, so the religious leaders come to him and say, so where are you getting your authority? He says, I'm not going to answer your question because you're not going to answer mine. So what about this story? And by the way, this is really, looks really bad for you. So let me give you another story in case you didn't get the point. Let's go on to the next one. 
And where the parable of the two brothers attack the beliefs of the religious leaders, this next parable is going to attack their actions. Or another way that you could look at it is the, the first parable talked about their inaction, their unwillingness to act on what they learned. The second parable is going to condemn them for the actions that they're going to take. So Matthew 21, 33. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard, and he put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. He leased it to tenant farmers and went away. And when the time of, uh, came to harvest the fruit, he sent his servants to the farmers to collect his fruit. The farmers took his servants, beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. And again, he sent other servants more than the first group, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them and said, they will respect my son, he said. I want to do a timeout here before we continue this parable. How many of you would have come to that conclusion? <laughs> All right, so verse 38. But when the tenant farmers came, uh, saw the son, they said to each other, oh, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they seized him, threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. And therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those farmers? So now the religious leaders chime back in. He will completely destroy those terrible men, they told him, and lease his vineyard to other farmers who will give him his fruit at harvest. Jesus said to him, have you never read in the scriptures? Another insult, by the way. These people studied the scriptures. Have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That is what the Lord has done, and it is wonderful in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruit. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will shatter him. And when the chief priests and Pharisees heard, this par heard his parables, they knew he was speaking about them. And although they were looking for a way to arrest him, they feared the crowds because the people regarded him as a prophet. All right, so the, the gloves are off for sure. Second parable attacking them. Let me ask you, because maybe you can fill in the pieces of the parable with me. Who is the landowner? God. God, right, Yahweh God. Who are the servants that were sent? Who could they be? The prophets. Um, who is the son? Jesus. And who are the wicked tenants? People he's talking to. Yeah, yeah, the religious leaders. In, in the last parable, Jesus accused the religious leaders of rejecting the message of John and John's authority. In this parable, Jesus is accusing the religious leaders of rejecting Yahweh, the prophets, and the son a little bit bigger. The actions of the farmers is abhorrent. They had no right to do what they did, and they had to know that the landowner would retaliate, right? Think about it. Jesus here is also predicting his death, by the way. And the religious leaders want to kill him. So this message is also a message of warning to those leaders, isn't it? What do you think the landowner will do to those wicked tenants who killed his son? And he 
said, they said, utterly destroy him. And here they are with their motive that Jesus knows is to kill Jesus. This is actually quite a merciful parable in one way, <laughs> for it's a warning. But it's also quite apparent that that warning was not heeded, just like the evil tenants didn't think about the fact that there would be repercussions for their actions, that the landowner would come and, and destroy them. Um, these religious leaders are obviously not concerned that they too will be destroyed for taking out the sun. I think there's a, a question from this parable that we're meant to, to ponder and meditate on as well. Um, what is the fruit that they were expected to produce or to return back to the landowner? In the passage, it was grapes. It was a vineyard. So the landowner planted a vineyard, got everything set up, made sure it was protected, made sure the animals would stay out, made sure there was a watchtower, all, all the things, the well so it could be watered, took care of all the preparation, left, and, and then when he came back, it was time for the harvest for him to receive the fruit of what he had done. I guess there's this question of what would that fruit have been then in this parable, or what could it be? Perhaps that fruit is the fruit of repentance. Like, well, what does that mean? Well, this is exactly what the message of John the Baptist was earlier in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 3, verse 7. This is John. When John saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees, so the religious leaders, coming to him, to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers. <laughs> John wasn't quite so subtle. He didn't use parables. He just called them. You brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Therefore, produce fruit consistent with repentance. Don't presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you that God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these very stones. The axe is already at the root of the tree, therefore every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, I don't know if you noticed, but there's a reference to stone, there's a reference to a tree, we've had a fig tree, we've had stones, there's a lot of things that are cross-pollinating here we're not going to get into. Um, but it's obvious that one of the things he could be talking about is looking for this fruit of repentance. If my people who are called by my name will humble, them, humble themselves and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear them from heaven. Maybe that's what he was looking for. Seems to be the most immediate application, especially since the last parable was about believing John's message. And if they had believed it, they would have acted on it. And acting on it would have, re would have meant repenting and showing the fruit of repentance. That also would be connected to then the, the fig tree. Which, by the way, um, have you ever done any research on fig trees? This is a side note. Um, Jesus came to the fig tree that had leaves, and he looked, and there was no fruit whatsoever. Uh, do you know that fig trees produce figs early on in the season? And they sit dormant for sometimes between 70 and 90 days before they actually start to ripen. And then once they ripen, it's kind of, kind of like they explode um, and very quickly become large and ripen up. But they stay small and dormant for anywhere from, from 70 to 90 days, depending upon the variety of fig. So even if the leaves were there when Jesus came to that tree, he should have seen some kind of fruit. But there was none whatsoever. No fruit at all in that tree. But this is a parable, right? So parables have multiple layers. You can, it's like onions, right? Like onions, like ogres. They have lots of layers. You can kind of peel away a layer and, uh, and see that there's some more there. Maybe 
it's not just about the fruit of repentance. Um, maybe it's about the fruit of his loyal followers, having people that are willing to follow him completely. We find this in, this out in, in Matthew chapter 7. You can go back to chapter 7 and, and read about that. Perhaps this is about the nations coming to know Yahweh and pointing out that Israel failed to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant is that God would bless Abraham and make him a blessing to the nations and that through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Maybe it's the fruit of bringing other nations into a relationship with God that they failed to do because they become more and more isolated, especially especially after, at the rebuilding of the temple. It started, and David brought this up, when the temple was rebuilt, um, Ezra and Nehemiah time frame, the Jews got very exclusive. No, this is our temple. This is for us. This is not for you. And they started to really exclude themselves from the nations, even though they were meant to be a light to the nations. So maybe it was that. Maybe it was both. Maybe it was all three. Um, repentance, obedience, disciple-making, I think they all kind of fall into that same category. So we don't have a, a definition of the exact definition of what that fruit is. What we know is that they were fruitless in their following of God. And fruit can be defined in so many ways. So when he's done with that one, we get to chapter 22, and we get this phrase, and once more. Now, you know in Matthew that once more doesn't mean necessarily that it happened like right after, but... There's, this is another one that goes in line with the other teachings. Once more. And this one's about a wedding banquet. Maybe this one will be positive. I know the last two have been pretty negative. You guys are staying with me pretty well here. That's great. It's kind of uh, negative down. This one's about a wedding banquet. What, what could be bad about a wedding banquet, right? Maybe this one will have some positive stuff to it. So once more, Jesus spoke to them in parables. And he said this. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who gave a wedding banquet for his son. And he sent out his servants to summon those invited to the banquet. But they didn't want to come. So again, he sent out his other servants and said, Tell those who are invited, see, I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fattened cattle have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the banquet. But they paid no attention and went away. One to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. Well, the king was enraged. And he sent out his troops, killed those murderers, and burned down their city. Sorry, it's not a happy ending parable either. Then he told the servants, The banquet is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. So go then to where the road exits the city and invite everyone you find to the banquet. So those servants went out on the roads and gathered everyone they found, both evil and good. And the wedding banquet was filled with guests. And when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed for a wedding. So he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him up hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited but few are chosen. Okay, so this one's heavy too. Now the theme of a wedding shouldn't be new to us. We've had this before, and it will appear again in, gospels, in, in Matthew's gospel. 
we should actually expect the theme of a banquet in this section. You're like, well, well, why should we expect it? Because we're talking about the way that the religious leaders are accepting or rejecting both John the Baptist and Jesus. So when they're talking about Jesus being rejected here, which is what we've shifted to, we went from them rejecting John to rejecting um, the prophets and Jesus to now this rejection of, of the Father and the Son. It would make sense that we go back to a banquet. You have to think back to Matthew chapter 11 when Jesus is confronting the religious leaders and he says this, to what should I compare this generation? Well, it's like children sitting in the marketplace who call out to other children, we played the flute for you and you didn't dance at your wedding. We sang a lament and you didn't mourn at the funeral. For John came neither eating nor drinking and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking and they say, look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, and yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. Jesus came eating and drinking. He's the, the banquet host. He is the one who brings life and celebration. There was no need for fasting while he was there because the, the groom was among them. So he brings this whole concept of a wedding back in. He's already covered it at least once with them. And in this parable, the king is having a huge wedding banquet for his son. And, and there's a lot that can be explored. And honestly, there's a lot in that parable that's debated that we're just not, it's, it's not the main thought that we want to carry through in this section. Um, but I encourage you to, consider, to continue to study it out. Uh, the main point that stands out and connects it, um, we need to start looking at, at who's involved in this parable. First of all, there's, there's the king, right? There's a form of nobility in each of these three parables, isn't there? There's the father, who is the head of his household. There's the landowner, who is the one that's, who is the head of that property, that business, and the head of those servants. And then this one, there's a king, who is the head of a, of a region. So you have this, this headship in each of them. And then there are those who are invited to this banquet. So those that would be invited, who would be invited to the banquet of the king? What type of people? Well, probably his officials, right? Some higher-ups in the government and higher-ups in his court. His family, his personal friends. Maybe some of the regional leaders from other areas that he's had relationships with. Possibly even other dignitaries from other regions might be invited. But in this case, you have the king has a group of people who are invited. And they're not just invited once, they're invited a second time, which is interesting. And they ignored both times. And it says that one went back to his fields and another one went back to his business. So there's two ways that you could earn a living. One would be to, to, be, to have a market or some kind of shop that you, where you sold and, and did that kind of, of business. And another one would be to be uh, agrarian where you would grow your own food and those types of things, grow crops and such. They went back to work. Now, I don't know about you, but if I had to choose between work and a banquet, I'd probably pick the banquet. They chose to go back to work. And some of them even killed the messengers. With why? Why would you kill the messenger? A messenger coming to invite you to a banquet. 
So the king kills them and destroys their city. Now, some believe that this is a prophecy about the coming destruction of Jerusalem. I don't know, but you'll hear that a lot in this passage. It could be. It might not be. Um, then there's everybody else who's invited. So the, the original invitation list is scrapped. And then there's the rest of the people who are outside the city limits. So you have the people who were not a part of the city, not a part of the original guest list, both bad and good people. Does that strike anybody as odd? Like, why would you even put that in there? If you're going to invite people to a wedding banquet for your child, are you thinking, yeah, you know, it doesn't matter if they're a criminal. We should just invite them anyway. Both bad and good people were invited. And they're both there. Now, again, if you're tracking with the Gospels, you can check out chapter 13, verses 24 through 30, and chapter 13, verses 47 through 52, where it talks about the wheat and the tares growing together and then later on being separated, and a, a big batch of fish that are then sorted out, and the bad fish are taken out, and the good fish are kept. This concept of having good and bad that are then weeded out later on is, is not a new concept to Matthew, so don't let that trip you up. Um, but it's a parable, so you always have a variety of, view, of views, right? So let me share with you some things that I think are, are important here. By asking a few questions, who would you associate with the invited? Probably the descendants of Abraham. The Jews would be considered those invited. They're part of the kingdom. Probably the religious leaders, those that were in leadership and authority of, uh, positions. Probably the priests. Indefinitely, you know, the priesthood was there to help people connect with God. So if the king is God, then you could assume that in this parable that it's the religious leaders as well. It's honestly those that are, that are arrogant. No, we don't want your banquet. Nope, we're going to go back to work. Don't bother us. We have more important things to do. As a matter of fact, we're so annoyed by you that we're just going to kill off your servants. I mean, the, the arrogant would definitely be in this category. So then who would be those that are outside the city? Well, this could be the outcast. If you're thinking about other times where Jesus met with people, it could be those that were lepers. It could be those that were crippled. It could be the children, right, that he's talked about over and over again. It could also be the Gentiles that Jesus went to visit outside of the region of Galilee. It would be those that are humble, that have the humility of a child, that are willing to accept the invitation and come. And that's one thing we can say for sure, is that those that were at the banquet were the ones who heard the invitation and acted on it. And we started out our passage by Jesus confronting the religious leaders and saying, listen, the first parable, the problem is, is you heard the truth, but you didn't act on it. You didn't even change your mind. And now here you have a parable of a banquet where those that heard the invitation acted on it. They accepted the king's invitation, went to the banquet. So while this parable could be foretelling the mission of the disciples to take the gospel to the marginalized and to the Gentiles, and it also then could be calling um, all of the servants of Yahweh, his church, including you and me, to do just the same. Jesus is saying that the banquet will be full, but not with just Jews and not with the elite. His calling is to all who will accept the invitation to celebrate 
the new life with the Son, and it's open to everyone. So these three parables seem to be pretty heavy on judgment. They really are. Um, However, I, I hope in all of this you also see the mercy of God. Did you catch that in here? You're like, nope. No, I'm just, I'm just envisioning fire and from heaven and lightning bolts. And No, there's so much mercy in these passages. Do you realize how many times these religious leaders have had an opportunity to repent? Because how many times Jesus has tried to teach them and show them the error of their ways and give them an opportunity to turn back to God? And yet they refuse. In, in his mercy... Think about the wedding banquet, the last one we just read. He sent out the servants, and and the invited guests wouldn't come. He sent out more. He didn't have to do that. Why would you do that? Because God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should have eternal life. Right? Isn't that what we're taught in our scriptures? There's a great mercy here in Jesus presenting so many teachings Matter of fact, later on, he's going to get even more direct because he knows the heart of these religious leaders and we're going to have a whole passage of woes. Woe to you. Because you haven't repented. And you've heard and you've heard and you've heard and you've heard. The mercy of God is that he continues to give opportunity after opportunity after opportunity for people to come to know him and to receive him and accept him. It takes us back to the most quoted scripture in the Bible itself. The Bible quotes itself many times. And the most quoted passage, one of the versions of it is found in Numbers 14, 18. It says, The Lord Yahweh is slow to anger and abounding in faithful love, forgiving iniquity and rebellion. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children to the third and fourth generation. God is slow to anger, compassionate, willing to receive back even the rebellious who have kicked against him for so long. And that invitation was still there for these religious leaders, and it's here for you and me every single day. As we wrap up, we should summarize a couple things. There is truth. God's word is declared truth. We need to choose to believe the truth, especially the truth about Jesus, and we need to act on it. We need to exercise obedience to the Father. We need to show the fruit of repentance and also share the gospel to create more fruit. And we need to accept the invitation of God to come to him. Jesus also said that in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. It's my prayer that you've accepted the invitation to the banquet, that you accept that Jesus is the one chosen by God to take the punishment for your sins and for mine, and that you choose to act in obedience to that, to surrender your will to the King, and allow Him to bring the life and the joy into your life that that he's intended to restore your relationship with him through the Savior.